On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, we are joined by the legendary Robert Klein. We talk about everything from 84 appearances on The Tonight Show to the early days of Saturday Night Live, from stand-up to music to acting. He has done it all. Uh, Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. And don't forget, leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob and Ronnie, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Baloo, Sue Kalinsky. How you doing? I'm good. Um, I got very, very worried about you this morning. Yeah, tell me. So it's uh, May the 21st, Saturday, as we're recording this. Uh, what? What? I was late, right? You were late. And, you know, sometimes we're maybe five minutes late, but we always let each other know, hey, hey, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to hop on, you know, in 10 minutes or whatever. And so we're supposed to go on at 1030 and no Steve. Yeah. And then it's 1037. Oh, no Steve. Oh. So I, you know, I, I had called you Yep. and uh, got your machine, yep. your machine, got your voicemail. <laughs> exactly. Machine. Hello, I'm 90. <laughs> uh, got your voicemail. And then I didn't hear from you. Then I text you. Where are you? And I was like, well, now I'm really worried because nothing. And then I called Juan. I, I left a text with Juan. Yeah. Oh, so you were really all in on this. I I am so sorry about it. Um, And uh, here you are. So yeah, I, here I am. I made it. Well, I'm in the middle of, as you're listening to this, in the middle of my trip with my fraternity brothers. And I'm taking a break because we've got a great guest today. So I'm taking a break, but it's been, it's been really, really good. We've had a very, very good time. So have you reverted back to your frat days? Kind of. Now I've been, they, they've been definitely drunk a lot and I, you know, I'm California sober, so I've been stoned a lot. Um, and, uh, there's been much, uh, but most of it hasn't been wild. Most of it's been just like sitting around and reminiscing and remember only the, only the good times, not remembering any of the struggles. Right. Right. So some of these guys get me up to speed here. Cause some of these guys you've seen, talked to, or none of these guys you've seen or talked to. All Correct. These years. So, so Paul. Uh, Craycraft is the one that I've seen the most over the years. They probably saw him three times and we stay in touch on text. Uh, the others, uh, Jim Pertel, I've seen a couple of times in the last 35 years, but two of these guys never have spoken to again and never have seen again. Uh, this is like for the first time in 35 years. It's crazy. Now, has it come into your mind like, oh, I wonder what happened to so-and-so? And, and then like, man, I'm not really interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What happened to this old girlfriend? What happened to that old guy that lived in the room down the hall? There's like mm-hmm. been a lot of, it's amazing how much we don't remember. That's the incredible thing. We, it, there are so many guys that we knew really, really well and were so important for such a short period of time. And now we cannot remember their names. 
it, it is kind of crazy. You know, I, I went to summer camp for six summers in a row and my best friend was there every year I was there. But during the year, <laughs> I never saw her, but she was my best friend for two months. But during the year, it's like we never talked. I never yeah, saw her. Yeah. And then camp would start up again. It was like, you're my best friend. Yep. But it was kind of and she lived in New York. <laughs> I mean, it, it's yeah, not like sure. she lived in Ohio. I mean, it was really, really crazy that um, that we never had any contact with with her with with her during the year. So this is my takeaway, at least so far from this weekend, is that nobody ever really changes. Like mm-hmm. everybody is the same in their own way as they were 35 years ago um, in a good way. Like all of the all of the good times, all, you know, the same guy is getting shit that always got shit. Jim Patel, uh, uh, the, the jokers are still joking. You know, it's like it's yeah, it feels very, very familiar. And it does feel like it was to be in the Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity house in 1987, which is crazy. So um, you weren't out back then. So I wasn't. So um, was that a a source of conversation? Okay. So here's the thing. I don't know if these guys will listen to this podcast or not, but it has not been mentioned a single time. And I don't know if that's, I don't care or if it's elephant in the room or some combination of the two, but it just hasn't mattered and it's never come up. In four days, nobody has even brought it up. You know what? I have a feeling that th- nobody really cares. I think you know what, what I mean. Yeah, I think I don't think anybody's like, oh God, I can't believe. You know, I think they're they're It's just accepted, and this is what it is. So I will I will tell you one story. And again, I don't know if these guys are going to listen or not, but um, I, I politically lean to the left. And uh, at one point last night, um, one of these guys looked at me and said. You know, I get all my news from Maria Butteroma. She's my girl. And I was like, oh. Oh, God, you just look like the scream painting. Polly McCulkin from <laughs> Home, Alone. Home Alone. Yeah, so I, I didn't follow up on it at all. But, you know, I, I think, and we've done a good job of avoiding politics the entire time we've been here. So there really has been no, that's the one moment. And I was like, oh. Oh, now, was it specifically surprised that it was that guy that said it or just that somebody said it, that somebody said it and then it was her? I guess that's what it was. Yeah, because she's one of the more aggressive right wing people out there. Well, Sue, let's waste no more time. Our guest today has inspired a generation of stand up comics like Jerry Seinfeld, Paul Reiser, Jon Stewart, Billy Crystal, on and on. Also a trained actor, he was nominated for the Tony Award for their play in our song on Broadway in 1979. He hosted Saturday Night Live twice on and on. He is just a flat-out comedy legend. Robert Klein joins us. Robert, thank you so much for doing this. Honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I watched the documentary, Robert Klein Still Can't Stop His Leg. It's so, it's so good. And one of the things, I'll throw you a really tough one to start with. In the documentary, Jon Stewart says, you changed what it means to be a comic. What do you think when you hear something like that? Where's the money? Where is the money? Um, Well, you know what? Um, People said that I was the first observational humor and all. That's not really true. I think it was best summed up. What John said was interesting. 
best summed up by Leno in that documentary. He said, when you're a kid in Western Massachusetts and you're into comedy, people commiserate with your mother. You know, is he still into that uh, thing? Because it seemed an illegitimate kind of profession. I mean, who the hell is a comedian? And you're talking about a few years ago. So they could point to Robert Klein. You know, I went to college. I was normal. I, you know, I had no cufflinks and the, the old uh, joke, joke, joke kind of thing. So I, these guys were about five, six years younger, Billy and, and Leno and, and, and Seinfeld and all of them. And I think they saw in me some sort of template for, the, for them becoming comedians. Yeah, because I think, you know, a lot of the comedians that preceded your generation, there was a lot more shtick in, in, with, with some other comedians. Um, they seemed, I, I think with you, it was just so, it was much more accessible and relatable because you weren't that much older than they were, you know? Well, in those, well, six years, like at school can make a big difference. They were, they were in high school. I mean, uh, uh, Bill Maher said, he listened to Child of the 50s, which my first album in 1973, and he wrote down the words to see what they look like on the written page. It was a guy named Ross Firestone who put out a book called Breaking It Up, in which several comedians' routines, including mine, with permission, were printed without punctuation like it was poetry in a narrow column. And it really changes things. And it, not exactly for the worse. It kind of made it look... Wonderful. Um, you know what, uh, uh, Sue, I don't want to uh, just flit away all the joke comedians came before. I saw live comedy when I was, my father had a good year, so we spent two, year, uh, two weeks in some shitty hotel in the Catskill Mountains, and a real comedian came by. He came up in his Cadillac, and he made people scream with laughter for 35, 40 minutes. They forgot their troubles with their health or their children. And I thought, gee, what a wonderful way to make a living. And I also laughed. You two bald-headed men, the first row, you put your heads together, you make an ass of yourself. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's valuable too, Jokey. But I didn't, I didn't want to be that way. And um, uh, in that sense, Lenny Bruce, who pushed social envelopes, and uh, Jonathan Winters, who, who did not push social envelopes but who was a one-man show not like other comedians i think those were my two i said you know what this can really be something interesting i could apply intelligence uh, erudition i can make audiences think you know that was my goal so you went to yale drama school and and were and are an actor um and have done so much has you've done so much great work um you were nominated for a Tony at one point. Was it was it acting or was it comedy that sort of got you into show business or some combination? Well, I to quote somewhere, The Sopranos, I made my bones as a comedian, but um, uh, it was it was college plays. I, I went to college to be a doctor. A few things got in my way: calculus, physics, biology, zoology. <laughs> Reading, spelling, comprehension, <laughs> behavior, aptitude, depression, women. And uh, I went in for history of political science. But sophomore year, I went out for the plays. in this little liberal arts college, Alfred University in Western New York. And they had a wonderful department, just two guys. So at the end of my junior year, 
all my friends are going to medical school, law school. Uh, these two kind of tweedy guys grabbed my little Jewish father from New York. You know, Mr. Klein, he's very talented. We think he should, we can, we can get him into the Yale drama school. And my father said, Yale? To be an actor? Did Eddie Cantor go to Yale? You know, <laughs> he had a point. But it, the, the fact is that immersion in theater, first in, as an undergraduate voluntary, then that year of graduate school, um, Second City was the greatest, uh, you know, because after that, I left school after that first year, the only year of graduate school, and I had no job. It was the fall of 63. President Kennedy was assassinated. It was just a horrible time. I, I wasn't working. I was not in school. I, I began to substitute teach, which gave me some pride. But um, if it wasn't for an agent from William Morris submitting me for Second City, who came to New York to look for people, and the great Fred Willard, the great late Fred Willard, and I were hired together. So. When I went there, it was even better training than Yale because you did the same show every night. And so that's multiple performance and stage. You know, I, I was in two Broadway hits out of the seven. And that's a bitch, you know, say the same thing over and over. But also you had an improvisational session at Second City. So I learned both. And I used to introduce something that David Steinberg or Willard were going to do. And I began to try out stand up and i loved it and as soon as i got to new york i got my first broadway show i ever auditioned for apple tree mike nichols directing i heard about the improv down 44th street from the schubert theater began doing stand up met a guy when i'll tell you you know i'm a can you curse on your show sure yes i'll tell you you know he said i'm a tough cocksucker and you were fucking <laughs> brilliant okay <laughs> and i never saw this guy in my life he had a black suit and a red tie and he became my yale drama school for stand-up he said now you got to come here every night for three years to get it right and he was right so uh, i just in fact made a video tribute to bud friedman uh owner of the of the improv out there in LA on Melrose, his 90th birthday coming up. Mm. Uh, so um, it really, you know, I, I was going to the improv, killing him every night. I called my agent, William Morris. I was getting 175 a week in Apple Tree. So they got 1750 a week. I said, I'm doing stand up. I want you to see it. Yeah, we'll come down, kid. We'll come down. It never came down. <laughs> and then Rodney said, I'll tell you, fuck William Morris, okay? You need managers. You know, and Rollins and Offy were the best in the business. They had Woody Allen, Joan Rivers, Dick Cavett. He had Nichols and May originally. Harry Belafonte was his first client. That was his before. They, he had them come to the improv. They saw me. It was a great night of my life. And I, I started to work as a comedian. And then I always interspersed it with movies, film, television, uh, and a stage. So two things. It kept me working, and it kept me from being bored. If I were an actor waiting for the next part all the time, you give me a light, uh, a microphone, I can make a living, you know, and a place to stand, Archimedes. Uh, so um, I really, I always wanted to do both. And, but basically, uh, from... 94 appearances on The Tonight Show. I was on Fallon 
just before the, the plague hit, and they gave me a plaque with all my Tonight Show appearances, mm. 94, um, mostly with Johnny, but also included either 10 or 15 guest hosts. And every Merv Griffin and Cavett and Letterman forever. That I was a creature of the talk shows. So I, I never wanted a sitcom. Later in life, I did a couple, you know, 10 episodes each, one with Jason Alexander, one with Judith Light. Pay was fantastic, but they didn't go. And just as well, I came home. I really never moved to the West Coast. So I wanted to ask you, you know, in the beginning of your career, you know, um, you know, you you had a certain style, you know, you were talking about observational comedian. And then there was a point in your career where you became more political. Was there like a defining moment where you said, this is this is what's important to me right now and this is what I need to talk about? Yes, Watergate. Hmm. Um, the second album, which came out in 74, a year later, both were nominated for Grammys, and George beat me on both of them. <laughs> uh, that, that was, uh, there was a lot of Watergate material in it. And, um, well, I always, you know, I always wanted to make a point. For 45 years, it's, it's on one of my HBO specials, I talked about washing your redskins, what a horrendous... You know, uh, the actual redskin comes from, there was a bounty on, on um, Inuit Native American scalps. You know, the more you kill, even Teddy Roosevelt, reading this, I just finished, actually, the second of a trilogy. He said the most terrible things about Indians. Anyway, uh, you know, how would I, I like a team? The New York Jews, you know what I mean? With Instead of that stupid Indian that the Cleveland Indians had, that, you know, <laughs> have a nice... Hook nose, nice rabbinical-looking Jew, right here. Come on, you Jew boys, you, 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 you too. You know we can tell. How about running for a change, not just piss? Anyway. So, they, actually, this comes up in the documentary. Why? Why do you think Jews are overrepresented in in comedy? Well, we are underrepresented in the priesthood. There are balances. <laughs> you know what? It's not unlike black basketball players in a way or Greek diners and restaurateurs who came as immigrants. To be a comedian, it was impossible to think of when I was a kid. Nobody was a comedian. That wasn't a profession. My father knew Myron Cohen, who was a monologist who did Yiddish jokes and spoke the King's English. Uh, it was on Ed Sullivan a trillion times. And my father was a textile salesman where the people say, oh, you should go into show business, Myron. You know. My father was 10 times funnier, but it never even occurred to him to go into show business. You know what I mean? So where was I? Nobody, you know, uh, uh, it, it, was, it was impossible to think of being a comedian. Go ahead. You asked me a question. No, I was asking you because you, you kind of went more into a political yeah. direction. Um, I always wanted to, I, 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 I was warned in my summer show, 1970, CBS, called Comedy Tonight. I replaced Glenn Campbell for eight weeks. I used to do that in the old days, the star. And I had my best friends, Madeline Kahn and Peter Boyle on. And my oldest best friends, both dead, of course. Um, I was warned, you want, don't be like the Smothers Brothers. Be mm. careful. Be a, mm -hmm. 
you know, the whole writing staff, everyone hated the Vietnam War. I was marching at Second City in 65, 66. So every Tonight Show I did, every word was parsed. But HBO was the big thing. Uh, my, my managers get a call. It's a guy named Harlan Kleiman who was programming HBO. It was not called HBO. It was called Home Box Office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a division of Time Life before Warner and before AOL, which was disastrous, and before all the others. They had a small crew of 20 people working on it, and they showed movies, blockbusters, that were in the theater three months before. You could now see them at home, uninterrupted, with the cursing. There was no original program. And he had the idea of taking a hot kid like Klein and doing a real I had mostly college concerts, and so they sent an art director looking around for a great-looking auditorium. They were already visual, you know. And they Haverford College, beautiful with old geezers, busts of geezers that you know founded the school or whatever. Really, that touch. So they there there was an hour show where I could say what I wanted and everything else. Incidentally, someone I think it was in the New York Times. An article of Marty Kalner, who was my director for that. And it was the first special, because nobody did one hour special comedy, my law, yeah. But he was the director. His previous uh, experience was hockey games in Boston. Hmm. So we, he was warned that I, I, I patrol the stage like a cat. I don't stand in front of the mic, I go around like that. Yeah. So he was so afraid. There were no close ups to speak of in the thing. And he's the biggest director of all these specials. Uh, he does he Academy of I don't know. He's the biggest thing. In, in, in. So everything was pioneering then. I made sure to curse uh, to make sure I put my stamp on it. And I am totally approved of profanity when used aptly. And I don't think that it's used aptly in many cases today. It's every other word. And it still gets a laugh out of shot, even though it's in the vernacular. I, it, a little elegance is missing. I know I sound like an old fogey, but, uh, you know, I, I just, a, any great writer would use profanity as part of the language. But, um, you know, I, 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 it was a great relief, the HBO thing, to really, we're all adults in the room by that time in, in, in the 20th century. And also, I'd like to say, as a, Nobody compared to superstar directors and all that. They never interfered with one word in nine specials. Wow. They censored me. And man, you know, I got ridiculous notes on comedy tonight on two specials I did for NBC and 8H, where Saturday Night Live is in 1981. Every word or nuance, you know, we did a Sex for TV on my pilot in 75 for CBS. It was like a Monty Python thing, again with Madeline and Peter. And so we did what you're allowed to do on TV. And we got some uh, slides from UCLA, some live paramecia. And, you know, we put you in the microscope and you see, and I sang, and if you're wondering what this all is leading to, I chose to I a key. That's my. <laughs> I wanna make it, and the and the power we back timed it, so they split up. That was paramecium sex. 
So it was called not standards and practices, but continuity acceptance. I don't know what. <laughs> get a letter from CBS censor. You know, this sexual innuendo is obvious, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this is an esoteric pervert that would get, you know, oh, I'd love for a reason. <laughs> uh, so I suffered from that greatly. And there was a great, um, I don't know, uh, coming to roost doing the HBO. Go ahead, Sue. I'll do, do no, no. Well, I. I That's we- enough, Sue. Uh, (laughs) enough for you robert um (laughs) you know i i actually watched the hbo special which was the first of its kind 1975 new year's eve in pennsylvania and something that i noticed about you is there's a certain movement that you had on stage and there was one bit where you were joking about um, dancers, how they always look like someone's holding them back at the shoulders, which is just so funny. (laughs) And it made, it actually made me think a little bit of Robin Williams. And, and I wonder like, do you think there's a little bit of a lot of comedians in, in a lot of comedians? Well, Robin was known to be a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, <laughs> as brilliant a talent as there was, I was out of the improv. The the comedians coming up would say, you know, um, you know why? Because Robin is uh, went to Juilliard. You know, he knew Broadway, he knew dances. Also, he was a tremendous. You know, he knows that that sort of scene. And, and it, you know, when I when I did Apple Tree, that first Broadway show. I got to work with dancers and they were the hardest working people. And they were, all the girls were so cute and the guys were so good, but they all walked with that, the feet outward and all that. Robin, um, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I never experienced that. Although there was a 15th anniversary, um, uh, celebrating the 15th anniversary of the improv on Melrose. And there's a big truck from HBO outside with a dish. And I was the host. And it was Paul Rodriguez, Robin, Billy, uh, Marty Mull, I think. And anyway, uh, uh, we, we were uh, taping the first two nights just in case the Saturday night live version, if the truck went down, you know, so they'd have a show. So uh, I guess... On Thursday, uh, or maybe I'm reduce it by one show. I don't know, but I was introducing, and I go Paul Rodriguez, <laughs> and I jumped off my stool, and I went a boy like that. He gave your brother a boy like that. He goes, take to your own. Thank you. I did a whole dance, which is very Robinist, right? Yeah. So Friday night, going. I figured it worked. The audience screamed. You know, so I go. Paul Rodriguez. Robin jumps off his stool, goes, a boy like that, he killed your brother. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> a true story. He was a public doll. I'm shocked. You know, I didn't know all about his disease. I knew that he was, I guess Rick Overston told me that he, he was back in rehab after all his years. You know, I, I really, I, it was very sad. Very sad. Um, he was amazing, and he he, um, uh, he he you know like the guys that came afterwards. He also was 
used to do this to me, you know, and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what a career. And also his agent and, and our manager, Buddy Mora, worked for Rollins and Jaffe. You know, they knew there's no Mark and Mindy without him. It's like the catbird seat, like the cards, you know. So. Sure, sure. Whoa, whoa. I, I, I tell but, you, the, re- the, reason, the reason why I brought that up is because, you know, there was like times in like early in my career, I remember Chris Albrecht, who managed the improv back in the day. I, right. I wasn't, I, I hadn't been at the club. He had already moved to LA when I started in New York. And he came to see me. I was with Paul Provenza. And he said to Provenza, oh, you know, God, you know, she's like stealing Seinfeld or something. He thought my cadence was a lot like Seinfeld. And I feel that, you know, we're all influenced by people that we see. And I, I want to tell you a story. And it, and it was very disturbing when Paul Reiser was starting to get a lot of attention. There was a showcase that he had at the Improv in LA and Richard Lewis, who obviously had a big influence on Paul, um, sat in the front row with his then girlfriend, Callie Curry, (laughs) who wrote Thelma and Louise, Mm. um, and just sat in the front row and stared up at him to try to intimidate him during his showcase because he felt that Paul was stealing who he was, his essence. And Richard sat in the front row and just stared at him to kind of psych him out during a very, very important showcase. I mean, there were agents there. They were casting people there. Um, and Paul, you know, he kept his cool. But you can tell that it was really bothering him because Richard was sitting in the front row, just staring up at him, not laughing with his arms folded. And I think everybody takes a little bit from everybody. I mean, you, you, you know, you you probably wouldn't have, you know, things that Letterman did if Steve Allen didn't do it. You know what I mean? So, I mean, Letterman definitely is, it was, it was an original to a certain extent, but we're all influenced by people who came before us. Don't you think? Absolutely. No Bach without Schutz, no Mozart without Bach. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's amazing to say that. First of all, that is mean of him on an important night. And I, I'm, I'm telling you the honest truth. I, I I don't even see that that I, I I don't know that I saw Paul do stand up, so I'm unfamiliar with it. I do know that when I first saw Richard Lewis, I thought he was doing me. He wasn't taking the jokes. Mm. He was doing me, I thought. And and um and I you know, good looking young guy and he's doing me. And uh, he's only a three or four years younger. Uh, we're friends now, uh, big mm-hmm. time. He's in pain, this guy. But, but anyway, um, I, I was doing some gig and uh, some fundraiser or something, and my, this table of people, hey, you know who uh, we're friends with? Richard Lewis. And I said, well, tell your friend that he really ought to get his own, you know, thing, because I feel like he's doing it. Hey, tell your friend. I get a three-page letter from him how hurt he was and how much I mean to him and all that. And as far as I know, he definitely did beautifully on his own. I mean, his performance in, um, I, I don't watch the other one too much. It's great, but who wants to be in show business? You know what I mean? Watching uh, uh, a curb your enthusiasm. His performance in Men with Tights mm-hmm. is one of the most hilarious I've ever seen, you know. And uh, I've seen him stand up and, you know, I remember when he was wrecked. That was... You know, uh, but that was hard, hard to watch. And he is completely, I mean, he's, 
He's just fighting some physical things. Anyway, he went off on his own. And Yasu, um, everybody, of course, is influenced by someone. It, it just, how much? Right, right. And, and there's a difference. But, and there's also a difference between someone actually stealing your jokes. Um, you know, someone could maybe take a little bit of someone's persona because they're, you know, it, it just it, it just comes into who they are as a performer. But stealing somebody's jokes, that is oh boy. that that's a bad one. That's a real bad. Yes, one. It is. And Rodney, um, in those days, it was rare that comedians did their own material, wrote their own material. You know, J, JK and this other guy who was killed eating drinking coffee by a cab. He was a terrible guy. It was amazing. Karma. Uh, they were writers. You know, Jackie Vernon would come in to try out his, uh, his uh, Tonight Show set. Um, Rodney wrote all of his own stuff, and that early stuff was magnificent. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, I'll tell you, you know, our streets are unsafe. Our parks are unsafe. Our schools are unsafe, but under our arms, we have complete protection. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's Russell Baker. That, that's worthy of, uh, you know, a, a Buckwald. Or a, I'll tell you, I played some tough clubs, you know. Vito's, formerly Aldo's, formerly Enrico's, formerly Nunzio's. I'll tell you, this Nunzio's is a tough place. You went into Nunzio's, you went down two steps, physically and socially. <laughs> oh, that's pretty brilliant uh, before he went you know my grandfather sneezed so he had christmas decoration he was great to me he was very fun so you hosted snl a couple of t- i think twice right yes the, the fifth show first year yeah, yeah, like. yeah, what yeah, was that scene that. like yeah they, they were nervous and in fact um that's before uh uh lauren was was you know king of the hill. I remember him coming to Rollins' office all the time. A little kid from Toronto looking for advice. I told him, I said, you you better think over doing this live because you know the actors are crazy. The NBC personnel there hadn't done a live show since Howdy Doody in 1956, <laughs> and they were plenty terrified too. Nobody was doing live television in, in 1975. And, of course, it was terribly bad. In any case, uh, it's 46 years old. I stopped watching it. You know, when I, I, I get um, spilkers because I, I want to, you know, that part. Or, you know, when I see a movie, uh, why shouldn't I get that? You know, Brad Pitt. I mean, you know, it shifted <laughs> script a little. <laughs> you know, just a little. You know, twerk it a little older. Get it a little old. You know? Uh, <laughs> Honestly, uh, uh, you know, uh, I had to do a reshoot on some movie at the Clear Blue Sky three months after the movie wrapped here in New York, thank God. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking, gee, I like to work. I mean, the last thing I did was uh, either Will and Grace or that movie just before the play. And they called me for this thing. Oh, shit. You know, oh, Christ, you know, I'm hanging out and. Washington Heights with, uh, you know, handing out uh, the, the uh, snacks to uh, homeless people. Anyway, um, but then the, I feel so good after the, the couple of days of, of hard work in which I, on my feet all the time, no problem. 80 fucking years old. 
So, uh, you know, I feel mixed about it. So when I, I you know, I, Steve and, and, and Marty, I, I saw them uh, on Billy's opening night. The show was very funny. Um, nobody knows how to sing in the show, but other than that, um, Billy can get away with it easily, nicely, uh, and he's hilarious. It's a virtuoso performance. It isn't great, you know, a play or anything, but but uh, uh, what's his name? Pamer. Yeah. David Pamer and the one who plays the wife, uh, they can't sing. And they have, you know, belted out some Broadway numbers and so a few critics on it, but it's a very funny evening. It's, uh, I, I always loved that movie. It was tremendously flawed, but because he directed it too. And it was a flop at the box office, but, it, you know, it was about a comedian and the lives of a comedian. I certainly relate to that. I, I have tremendous respect for him in this only because he's investing so much of himself. He's 75. And, um, you know, it's kind of taking a chance. Also, he's doing seven, not eight a week. But, man, oh, man. You yeah, know. yeah. That's and crazy. About the times, how it means something to him emotionally. And he's, he's a really good guy. You know, we were uh, just talking before you got here. I've got my four fraternity brothers from 35 years ago in town right now. And so we're sort of getting to know each other for the first time in a, in a long time. Um, and time is sort of, I'm, I'm very reminiscent right now. I, this is not really a question, but it is interesting. And as you're talking here about how time passes and how the way you remember things and the people that you knew, and that sort of retrospective feeling that you've got, right? Um, you know, uh, there's a guy I know since I'm 11 years old. He was a teen tone on with me in the, in the Ted Mag Amateur Hour. So he's fell twice last week, uh, the last few weeks, 10 stitches each time. There's a lot of blood in the head area, you know, so it's worse than it is, but it could have been. And I don't know. It's not like we keep on saying it. We keep on saying it. I can't believe. I mean, my God. But it's we live it every day. So it's it's not remarkable to see people that were mighty. And um, I see old timers day at Yankee Stadium is one of the few things I pay attention to. And all the heroes from my youth: Hank Bauer, Eddie Lopat. Gene Woodling, uh, Phil Rizzuto, Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, you know, they're not around anymore. But other guys, you know, you see, and they're old men. And and I, I have had, uh, I'm invited to a memorial, which I refuse to attend, to the first true love I had in college. I wrote about her in my book, The Amorous Busboy of Decatur Avenue, Simon & Schuster, extremely cheap on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> They're invited to the life of it. She changed her name, you know, like one of these things in California. Like not quite a commune, but you know, she died in 78 or 9. Her daughter told me that she had been demented for six or seven years. You know, I'm getting used to that. I don't, I mean, she cheated on me and left me. So I'm not attending a memorial. That's probably true. I, I just don't want to. There's enough memorials coming up and that I've gone to already. And uh, although I do read the, uh, the New York Times obituaries faithfully, second after quick headline, because the, the obituaries are better news. 
and what's going on. I, I wanted to ask you one last one last thing. So, I, you know, the documentary is called Can't Stop My Leg. Um, in a lot of ways, Robert Klein still can't stop his leg. There, yes, absolutely. Um, it is such an embodiment of your comedy, right? Because it's music. It's got that physical slapstick. Qual- it's smart. Um, do you feel like, and obviously they chose the the name for your for your documentary. Do you feel like that that bit sort of embodies what you've done in your career in terms of comedy? Absolutely not. It's a stupid joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great it joke. It happened one night at the New York Improv. The great Raymond Johnson, to whom Bette Midler owes oh, a tremendous debt of gratitude, great jazz guy from, from Louisville. Um, he's playing the blues. I'm blowing the harmonica. You know. <laughs> You know, and my, my leg is going, and I'm just blowing the harmonica. And, and, and then because of Second City and what's in me, that's how my material is written, improvisationally written originally, and then toned. The first thing that came to my mind is, I can't stop my leg! And the audience screamed. So I did it every, all nine HBO specials, Broadway version, hip-hop version, Latin version. It became, you know, and that was Marshall Fine. He was a wonderful, uh, he was a critic for many, many years. He, he wrote a wonderful book about John Cassavetes and Harvey Keitel. Mm. And he did this documentary and he was in uh, Omar, wherever, the Middle East Film Festival, whatever. And there was Harvey Weinstein and his team. And he had, Harvey Weinstein had published a book of his, the one, I think the Kaitel book, I'm not sure which, but the Cassavetes book. And he saw the, we made a sizzle reel, five minutes. I love it. Bingo. So now it's in litigation. You know what I mean? Uh, because that whole company is, is I yeah. know he was a louse. I didn't know he was a monster, you know, because I have a movie on, net, on uh, Prime right now called Before I Go. And, it, and I play Annabella Sciorra's father, and he ruined her career. Yep. Yeah. Anyways, her life. This man raped her. So I did a, a movie with Pacino Fib, too, uh, people I know. But this, the first offer he got, a good enough offer. It was a billion-dollar offer, and he took it. And- well, listen, uh, this has been uh, fantastic. Uh, it is so great to talk to you. I think when Sue and I were on in New York, we got you on the show one time. Uh, and that you were always like the dream guest, the guy we wanted the most. Uh, and, and we appreciate you doing that. and appreciate you doing this today. Thank you so much. Did you for, do that at Sirius? No, we, it was WNEW. We WNE did WNEW in New York. Oh. Yeah, you came on. You didn't come into the studio. It was over the phone. Oh. But you were great. You killed. This is... <laughs> Didn't have this then. This is fantastic. Yeah, oh. this is great. This Sorry is about great. the lawn mowing to all your listeners and viewers, but it's a pleasure. So thank you very much, and Mr. Mason. Uh, you have that real radio sports voice. I like it. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Robert, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, Robert. The whole point of doing this podcast is to be able to talk to people like Robert Klein, who is just legendary. Charming, funny, um, gracious, 
just, you know, it's funny because he says he's 80 years old and he's still so immature. Oh yeah. Very immature. <laughs> he's so, he's so young and, and, and cool. And, and, uh, and he looks great. Yeah. He looks great. He looks great. And by the way, still doing stand up. He's uh, June 18th at Monmouth university in New Jersey. And then June 25th at the Suffolk theater in Riverhead, New York. He told us to pronounce it Suffolk instead of Suffolk. <laughs> I, I believe that was the instruction. It, was it, it yes, it came, it came with instructions. Yes, yes excellent. Uh, well, that was great. That was It's an honor to have him on the show. He's fantastic. Um, hey, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. Uh, tell your friends, leave us a rating and a review. Sue, great show. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.